You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. It's the 23rd of November, 2022, and I'm joined by our special guest today, James from Quality Compound. He has been on the show twice, but, well, he's been on the show once before, but it was, was it twice? It was definitely two interviews. I can't remember whether it was recorded as one or two, but he has been on before. It was under the name 20s Trader at that point. If you do want to go back and listen to them, it's episodes 62 and 64. James, firstly, thank you very much for coming back on the show. And for anyone who hasn't listened to you before, would you be able to briefly summarise who you are and your investing story to date? Well, hello, Sam. Thank, thanks very much for uh, having me back on the show. Delighted to be here. So uh, it's been about 18 months since our last episode. So fantastic to be back. To answer your question, I'm essentially a private investor who's gone through probably eight to 10 years now of investing in the UK and international markets. And towards the kind of latter part of that time period, journaling and writing and eventually freelancing for a publication with my writing. So I can tell you a bit about that journey today. But essentially, I'm I'm a quality oriented investor who, you know, is having a lot of fun kind of writing and, and meeting people in the investment community as I go along, really. I think that's probably the best explanation I can give. Do you still have the paid service on the website? So, yeah, I, I can kind of take you through the journey that we've been on yeah, sure. over the, the last 18 months or so. So when I last spoke to you, I was you know going under the name the 20s Trader and now it's switched to the Quality Compound. So I think there's a few things that have gone on during that time. Back when I last spoke to you, I was you know, working at the time of COVID, but I had a lot of spare time during the COVID pandemic. And I spun up a, a website, which I called The 20s Trader and was writing blogs on. I think I was doing at least one kind of free content piece a week and then a paid subscription piece through the Patreon service. And then, you know, quarterly newsletters through that Patreon service as well. So I was pumping out quite a lot of content. Um, and then, you know, slowly across the course of the year, I think my personal life and work ramped up and the ability to commit to the paid service was diminished. Uh, and so sadly, I had to shut that part down because it became sort of writing on both Saturday and Sunday. You know, if it's a lot of time of your life that you you put on hold. And so as, as the lockdown started to ease, I kind of wanted to do more more life things rather than, you know, investing and writing all the time so that kind of paid service shut down and then probably six months after that I was still doing writing for the website on a, on a free basis but I ended up picking up a freelance contract uh, for a publication called the armchair trader which I've been writing for for probably three or four months now and that's really kind of turned things around for me where I'm able to write a, a kind of semi-weekly post through their publication and get remunerated for it. So at the moment, that's where I've kind of focused my my efforts. And I think the, you know, the quality compound website is still there and all the content's up and I will be occasionally posting on it. But I think for now, it's kind of gone to the focus where it's that, that work-life balance, I think. 
and that's the journey I've, I've gone on really do you mind if i ask how armchair trader came about and then also what kind of stuff you're writing for it like what would a typical article be about is it just covering earnings or is it deep yeah, dives so armchair trader I've, i'd only heard of them a couple of times before i actually met but i was at the uh the investor show in london uh one of the invest the london investor shows that gets put on in physical form and i think it was um one of the first times they'd kind of come back face to face after COVID uh, in, in Islington. It was a really good show. And there was um, Stephen Yu from Blue Whale Capital was there. Harry Nimmo, which is a well-established fund manager in the small cap space and you know, various other um, UK-oriented managers to go and do talks about their investment style and you know what their opportunities are. I think JP Morgan were there too for from their asset management vehicle. So you turn up to watch those talks, but there was also a big exhibition side of the room and the armchair trader guys were there and I introduced myself to them. Um Michael, who's the one of the editors there. And um we just kind of hit it off and built a connection and you know I showed him my website and showed him some of the work that I was doing and kind of went from there really and, and we just kind of built a relationship and pitched a couple of articles to him and, and then the rest is history. So my actual kind of remit on their page is to kind of stick to what I know, so to speak, where you know, most most kind of um, financial writers have a, for a freelance basis, have a background in journalism and not in the investment side of things, whereas I was coming the other way around. So they like to kind of leave me to it, so to speak, in terms of what I want to talk about. So it's it's a lot of the content that I would have, you know, published on the Quality Compound. So I'm keeping the integrity there on, you know, speaking about good quality companies that I like the look of, and I kind of get to go and do a around a thousand words on why I think things are happening, and you know, just stretch a little bit further than just the earnings. So, you know, maybe they've done recent acquisitions and how the cash flow you know, has been impacted by them or, you know, profitability and things like that. So digging a little deeper than your typical article would. Um, and it kind of gives that that midpoint of giving that quality to to the publication. So that's that's been that for the last couple of months. Well, what proportion of the articles then are on stocks you already own versus stocks you don't? Do you just tend to find that as you're reporting on your own businesses or looking at them, that just tends to be the focus or is it right i want to go have a look at this this week yeah that's a that's a good question i'd probably say i i started by doing a kind of a global view and as a lot of my holdings are in the us it was kind of a, it was quite a high proportion of the stuff i'd already owned so maybe 60 percent, something like that but since then they've kind of given me the prerogative of focusing on the uk so i'd probably say something like 60 to 70 percent of the companies I'm writing on, I, you know, I follow, they're probably in my investment universe, but I don't have a holding in them, which is really nice because it then kind of allows me to kind of keep up on them and, you know, just try and understand what they're doing. So I, th I think the kind of the selection process will be, you know, midway through the week, I'll kind of try and have a look at what RNSs have been put out for that week and who's reported and then kind of go from there on selecting what I think would make the most interesting article. So so going back to quality compound, 
why did you change the name? Because it was 20s Trader last time we spoke. That really came about from, I think, you know, you you set a name for yourself and then you can kind of feel a little bit uneasy with it over time. So, you know, coming into this, you know, setting up with the website and everything like that, you know, it was a really quick decision as to, okay, you know, I've been investing for years, COVID hit, everyone, you know, all of my friends are asking me, and I explained this in the first episode where I'm getting, you know, asked by friends, you know, consistently to give them hints and advice as to setting up and investing and things like that. And so myself and my partner kind of really thought, hey, we better do something with this because I'm constantly, you know, talking about things with my friends and I should really be, you know, publishing something or, you know, making some use of it. So we kind of within a week had decided what the website would look like, what the name would be and all that sort of stuff. And then I think over the months and months, you know, I was writing for about a year under that name and then thought, I'm not really sure how this is sitting with me. You know, I'm more of an investor than a trader, you know, probably a more leaning towards the quality companies. And even like now, as we, as we go on, you know, I've got less time in my life to be searching for trading opportunities and I've got, you know, more interest in looking for something that I can hold on to for a long period of time, almost a set and forget rather than a constantly monitor. So I think that's really where that that name change came about from. I do actually prefer the new name. I was actually surprised when you changed it. I was surprised (laughs) it it was available, but on the Twitter (laughs) handle. How's your, so we've done the personal side, but how's the portfolio done? and changed in the last 18 months, if at all. Yeah, so I've got, in terms of structurally, you know, the the, the kind of the names and, and results, but then, you know, overall performance as well. So I think um, to kind of be descriptive about overall performance, I'd probably say the portfolio, the personal portfolio, took a, a hit sooner than the market did in terms of, coming down in value so i think we were ahead of the market in that decline um but then actually the last few months has seen a kind of a much quicker pickup than the market has been you know for for a couple of reasons so i think i think i probably am in line with the market in total kind of performance but there was that kind of quicker you know quicker step down and then a, almost a quicker step up for for a couple of reasons so i hope that kind of gives you a picture of a performance without going too much into the numbers and then i i think you know talking actually company specific wise there have been a few changes that i can uh, take you through so I've, I've got a list so yeah the the main kind of changes that we've actually had in the portfolio the personal portfolio over the last year and a half been the sale of AB Dynamics, which is the suspension and track testing uh, company in England. Wingstop, I sold, which is the chicken wing franchise company. Uh, Strix Group, which is the kettle controls company. Remy Cointro, which is uh, the expensive brandy and, and spirits company. And GB Group, which is a kind of a roll-up vehicle in identity and, and fraud technology solutions. So they've kind of been exited throughout time over the last 
year and a half. And then we've built positions uh, and added to Safe Store, which is a completely new position, uh, MedPace, which is a completely new position that, that I'll go on to talk about. Uh, and then we've kind of topped up JD Sports, Gamma Communications, and Games Workshop. Could you briefly talk about why you sold Wingstop? Because I just, I, it's just, I, I've just picked it out sort of at random, but I think we talked about it in our last interview. So I'd just be quite curious. And then just going across the ones you've sold, is there any theme to what you have sold? Is it because you wanted to add to something else? Is it because you just got it wrong? Is it because the thesis changed? What What do you think the reasons were for those sales? Yeah, yeah, these are important questions. So, so Wingstop I'd held for probably about two years before kind of coming on to the the podcast, and essentially, it's it's a fantastic company that has so much opportunity, um, but it's one of these companies that if you actually look at the chart, it did this massive, you know, probably forty or fifty percent, you know, dip from from the highs well before the market dropped, which is essentially what, what I was talking about. I think there was a quality, you know, sell off, you know, maybe a month before the rest of the market kind of bottomed out. But Wingstop, if you look at the chart, it did this U-shaped pattern where it kind of gapped up about 100%, you know, pretty quickly. So now you're sat on a stock that, you know, has rallied really strongly versus the rest of the market that's tanked and, you know, Whilst it's a good company, I think it was trading on something like 100, 116 times earnings by the time it had, you know, galloped back up. And there are reasons why, you know, this company is, is trading at such a, a high price to earnings ratio. And I can go into it a little bit, but this sort of franchise, essentially how these franchises work is in their earlier stages, if there's a proof of concept, you know, they've got 1,800 stores at the moment you know, the earnings flow from that is minimal, but you can see that they've got all the right numbers in terms of operating margin, the actual stores of generating revenue. They're the number one franchise request in America. So they, they're going to do about six to 7,000 units. So that's almost pretty much baked in. But where the kind of earnings can be really expanded in these sorts of franchise things is if you look at Domino's, what they did over the period of low interest rates, they're five or six X leverage to EBITDA. So what they do every year, they buy back something like 10 to 14% of their market cap. If you look at the share, you know, shares in issue for Domino's Pizza Inc., that's the US franchise owner, the, the shares in issue just crater down every year. So they're doing that by artificially kind of jacking up the leverage. And um, that's what Wingstop is yet to do. So whilst it might be trading on a crazy multiple now, you know you can really see that earnings flow coming up both through adding stores and by leveraging because they've got such a consistent royalty coming from their franchisees. So that's why I liked it. But at the same time, you've got this juxtaposition with a market that's tanked and, and a stock that's done really well. So had to cut that one. Remy Quantro is much the same. You, you're looking at a business that's fantastic. You know, it's got incredible pricing power. I think it can sell a bottle of its high-end spirit for a hundred thousand pounds. You know, no one's really going to care at that price back if you add an extra ten percent on. So it's got inflation-beating power. But again, you're looking at a business that has done 
a lot better than the market uh, where there's other things that I think are more cyclical that could have a quicker bounce back that, that I added to. GB Group was sold at its highs. I think it, I was up about 60% on that um, and just thought, take the money off the table because one of my articles goes into this, actually, it's on my website, but they're a roll-up vehicle. But unfortunately, a lot of good roll-up vehicles will spend using their own cash flow, which is what Gamma Communications does. Uh, I think you you either own Gamma or, or you're, you're very into the story there. So no, I'm, a, I'm a very happy owner of Gamma. Yeah. So they'll use their free cash flow to buy, you know, 40 million of another business every year. But GB Group does, you know, a placing um, and will, I think I looked in one of my articles around a five-year period, saw 80% of its market cap in shares being added to the market. Um, And it did very well for a long time. But I thought, you know, it's only going to be... A matter of time before another big placing comes on and and you know dilutes you down and then, a matter of fact within about a month of me selling quite luckily um they announced the acquisition of Accuant, which is a u.s identity solution provider that they you know were spending 900 million dollars on and it's crashed the share price ever since so did well to get out that one and then ab dynamics which is uh, a uk business this is an interesting conversation you know maybe you've got some insight here but this this is a one of the decisions that i've made and and it's a bit of something that i look for as criteria now that when you actually look at ab dynamics as a company it's its margins are great and for years and years it's kind of net profit has been going in the right direction you know with sales but if you actually look at what you're getting for the 300 to 500 million market cap, you know, you're looking at something like 10 million in net profit. And it's just, you know, the, if you look at the numbers every year, that real bottom line, it's not compelling. And I think to a certain extent, you know, you've got these companies that run into this spot a bit like uh, there's a company called Bioventix and, Bioventix has an operating margin of 80%. It's one of the most profitable companies probably in the world, but definitely the UK and investors love it in the UK, but it's got a 300 million market cap, but it's, it's net profits are so tiny that you sort of think, how does this snowball ever get rolling, you know, versus a company that, yeah, it might have a bit higher market cap, but it's kind of got a bit more uh, momentum behind it because the numbers are a bit higher whilst the margins are like 16 17% on the operating side i just didn't think it was compelling enough to carry on holding when there wasn't that momentum coming through the bottom line so, so um, was it just, what was the revenue growth like it faltered in covid because it's a track testing provider yeah. so essentially all the tracks had to shut which was a knock but i held through that period because i knew that was coming back and then the shares bounced back so, you know, the, the the top line probably grew 20%, you know, after, you know, compared to 2019. So looking at the 2019 comparative in 2021. So, you know, the top line wasn't that bad. And even the, you know, the EBITDA and adjusted operating profit isn't that bad, but it's just, you're looking at very small numbers 
mm. when you're looking at net profit. And I just, you know, there's something that says to me, you know, just go, go on the larger sort of side of the company. So, you know, maybe that'll turn out to be a, a wrong decision, but um, it's just yeah. what I was thinking at the time. I don't know. I, th- I think with those ones, what, what one thing I've found recently is I find that like when, when I'm doing, say, a 10 minute overview for a company, for example, for the podcast, there's a, there's a few things I'll check with every company. And then if it's actually quite enticing, I'll be like, right, well, I actually want to look into this a bit deeper. But one of the things I always check is I'll just look at the figures for the past five years. And what, what I'm getting now is you've got, for example, like I wouldn't have looked at it anyway because of the industry, but we'd recorded an episode last night and we looked at Young and Co's, the pub chain and Young and Co's. They've basically got three lost years because of COVID. So you look at the five-year figures and they've yeah. hardly moved. And for me, that's that's the end of it. I'm not going to go and look at 10 because I, I wouldn't <laughs> do it anyway for a pub chain. But it is difficult because with that, I mean, for, for a pub chain, I thought it was quite pricey. It was about 19 times earnings or something. But there could be a growth story there, but I wouldn't have picked up on it because I'm I'm looking at the five-year figures and they're not there. So I'm just stopping. Whereas over 10 years, I don't know, they might have done a bit better. But I think with the smaller figures... I don't mind it so much as long as you can see where the growth comes from. Yeah. So this, uh, I, I just pulled it up on my market screen here and you've got from 2019, you've got net sales uh, basically stayed at around 60 million, 2019, 2020 and 2021. It's only in 2022 and they've hit 80 million net net income was 8 million in 2019. And at tw- in 2022 it was four million so you've done you know four years of revenue at 60 million on average or 65 million let's say so you're looking at 240 million of of revenue over a four-year period and you know not not more than 15 million of net income over that time and you just think what you're going to do with that hmm you know, where's that going to get you? <laughs> Where do you find these businesses? Because they're not small caps, but they're not FTSE 350 either. So are these just aim-listed companies? And how are you finding them in the first place? Um, yeah, I think I talked a little about this on my on my last one, so that there'll be a few insights there. But I use, a, a you know, quite a wide variety of sources to kind of find things. I think... Over the years, I've got quite a good repertoire of what's in the AIM 100 and what's in the FTSE 250. tend not to be so bothered about the FTSE 100, but I I have kind of scoured A to Z through those indexes to get a grip of what's in them. So that's a kind of a a place to start. I'll also look at, um, there's a, a FTSE sector tool uh, you could just type it into google and so you can click into a sector so comes you know after 10 years you've sort of gone through all market cycles so if a market cycle is looking at i don't know you know defense is looking good you know you'll go into that sector and analyze all the companies in it and just get a quick you know frame of mind so there's those things and then i use a tool uh which i found not so long ago which is called marketscreener.com and that's really good for identifying either international or, or UK companies. You can kind of click on um, and s- scroll through their look functions and, and literally go by sector. Or if there's a company that you like, 
you can click on a company breakdown, scroll down, and that will give you all of the similar companies. So that's really useful in terms of, you know, okay, if you like something in like architectural design, like Autodesk, which is the US uh, software company, you can click on that and then it will give you, you know, Nemet's check, which is the European version. It will give you ANSI's, which is the environmental simulator. So it will give you a list of all of the other ones and then you'll get also a percentage year-to-date change. So you might see, you know, one's done a lot better than another, you know, a little bit of story in there, but you can kind of quickly click and see you know, who's got the best margins, who's got the best growth. So that's a tool that I really like kind of bouncing around with. And then the other one is I, f- I follow, you know, like yourself, I follow a lot of kind of good quality funds. One of the best probably in the UK for kind of FTSE all share company. So either AIM 100 or just above that is um, Sanford Deland, a guy called Keith Ashworth Lord. Uh, he runs a Buffetology fund. So it's in the name, right? He's looking for companies that are, you know, have a good moat. They've got good operating margins. You know, they've got growth thrown in there too. So he's looking for some of the same things that I'm looking for. So if you were to look at Buffetology, I think he owns... AB Dynamics, which we were just talking about. He owns a company called Craneware, which is a really good software business. It does hospital billing software. He owns Darktrace. You know, he owns a lot of stuff that's in the investment universe that I kind of look for. So I'll look at that, listen to him on a couple of podcasts. You can catch an extra few companies. Um, and then internationally, uh, if we're talking US, there's obviously Fundsmith which has a Smithson fund. So I look through their annual report. Actually, if you have Hargreaves Lansdowne, you have the app. It's the easiest way to find out what a company holds is you just kind of go on the investment trust or the fund and click annual report and it'll pop up and, and you'll be able to scroll down to all their holdings. So you can see, you know, what companies they've they've sort of bought and sold recently, which is always good to look up. There's a company that I really like, well, an investment fund in the US called Poland Capital. And they do about five different uh, fund vehicles, which is all the way from global growth to small cap US companies. And I found some real good companies, of which we'll, we'll talk about one later, which is MedPace um, through, through there. So a couple of different things. I try not to look at things on Twitter or you know, what people are overly pitching to you. It's better to do your own research and come to a kind of a conclusion through organic thought rather than uh, someone telling you to do something. So where you've got that mix of UK and international stocks in the portfolio, what do you think about investing in the UK versus US and other countries? And how does what do you think of the valuations as well? And do you think that's changed since you were last on the show? Mm, yeah, I think when, when I was last on the show, the you know the US market was doing very well. The UK seemed to kind of been been a bit of a dog for a long time. However, with the old oil and gas and defense companies and pharmaceuticals and things like that, that you know at least the FTSE one hundred has been doing better recently. I guess. My view is I think uh, I, I almost feel as though the fact that 
we are all UK investors, you know, hasn't done us any favors in terms of we've got a kind of an orientation or or a safety perception around British companies that we know them better and you know they can they can perform better for us and there's that comfort feeling of you know if you've got if you've got an extra place that needs filling in your portfolio if you're based in the UK you're probably going to look you know for a UK company first up but you know I wanted to talk about this because I think there are a few interesting things that I've read over the last you know few few months or so but um either Europe or the US you know if you're to listen to some US podcasts um there's one that I like called the compound show and you can understand from their perspective just how much they do not want to invest anywhere else right you know if there's a, a guy called Josh Brown and he explained European companies he said in the US you know we he had an antitrust lawyer on so a guy that was talking about the size of you know companies and how big they're able to get to and the antitrust lawyer was essentially saying look in america size does not matter it's only when you break the rules do we come looking for you so you could grow to 50 trillion dollar market cap you know that's not a problem it's only when you abuse your position as a big player in the market but he was flipping it onto you know the european market where Essentially, we strangle companies that get too big for for reasons that as citizens make sense. You know, I, I, when I look at what's happening in China, where you have, um, you know, the Alibaba situation and the crackdown and, you know, as citizens of a country, I think it makes a lot of sense to regulate how big companies get, um, who they're allowed to buy and, you know, all, all these sorts of things. But, you know, from an investment standpoint, you want the best return. And I think, you know, the US is where size is encouraged. And there are there are a whole different kind of small little things that kind of add up. So I was looking at an article about Lind, the uh, French conglomerate uh, in the air, air and gas business. They make helium and all sorts of different industrial gases and they merged with a company called Praxair, which is a US company, um, probably a year and a half ago. But they're basically listed on the French Stock Exchange. And they've now made the decision that despite being a French headquartered company, you know, they've got so much heritage in France, they're going to get rid of their French listing and list over in New York. For the main reason that the French regulation is, as soon as you get to a certain size as a constituent in their main stock market, they want investors to force sell to get you down to the right weighting that you should be. So this creates constant pressure, you know, selling pressure on the shares to essentially bring them back in line with the market. Right. So it's, it's almost like an anti-growth, you know, prospect. So that's how does that work in thing. praxis? So essentially, if you're if you're Lind and you're on the French Stock Exchange and your shares go on a run. And so they pop 20% or something like that. And now it distorts the valuation and you become over the threshold of where the French regulation is. The, you know, institutions will have to sell that stock to bring it down so, in value. So would they say what? Well, this company can only make up a maximum of X percent of the total market cap. Exactly. And yeah. you just, so you, you, you wouldn't get, for example, 
I know it's a tiny company, but you wouldn't get a GameStop situation where something's been run up to a level where you've 10 exactly. extra money overnight. Yeah. Um, how I, I know you're not an expert on French <laughs> investments, but how does that is that adjusted as a company grows? How do they actually because you'd have to monitor that because if the company's just getting better and better, that, that that this is exactly why they've moved to New York. Listen, there's there's an FT article if you type into Google, you know, Lind uh, D lists from CAC 40 France, you know. For in you know New York Stock Exchange, I'm sure the FT article will pop up. But essentially, it's a backwards. You know, this is not a growth orientated thing. But we don't know this. As in, you know, it's not written on the stock market guidance, so you know, it's not there for people to know until you see something like this and you go, "Well, you know, why the hell was I thinking I was going to get you know an outsized return from a French equity when?" there's these rules and regulations in place. So, you know, that's, that's one thing. And then, you know, on the the side of the U S they've just got a different mentality. And I was talking to someone recently that a lot of companies, well, pretty much the, the legal limit for annual leave is 10 days, you know, versus probably what 25 here, you know, you've got, just different conditions for life there you know capitalism is the center of everything they do and i don't want to live there you know <laughs> i don't think these things the way that their economy is set up is great for lifestyle but you know where would i rather put my money to work that to me makes a lot of sense and i think the uk it's it's not a uh you know it's not it's very obvious that the UK has had a lot of problems recently, you know, even in politics, they're trying to turn around the UK market, you know, all the time because you've just got this kind of flow of capital, all the IPOs go to the US. So, you know, London hasn't done very well in terms of you know, attracting capital after Brexit and things like that. So I think the the likelihood of you getting, you know, a good company and an outsized return in the UK is a lot lower than the US, in my opinion. I think, you know, that that really says it all and and should be a guide for people as to where to allocate. Do you think your portfolio reflects that? Um yeah, I was looking the other day, I think I'm sixty percent US and probably thirty percent UK, ten ten percent other markets, so probably not enough, I think. The only thing that we do contend with is the, the you know, the pound dollar situation, which, you know, over the last couple of months, I probably wanted to add more to a US holding, but at, you know, one pound oh five to the dollar or one ten, you know, that it's been lingering at, it didn't really seem that appealing. And that's helped because, you know, we've seen that it's, you know, the pound has popped back up. So, um, that would have only been damaging. So that was where I've been topping up JD Sports and Gamma Communications and um, Games so Workshop. Do you, not, do you not think the lower valuations is enough to offset, call it the better conditions for growing as a company in the US? Uh, yes, I, I agree. But I've, I've viewed the... I viewed this pound as a situation that essentially would snap back sooner than valuations would in the US. I think 
No, sorry, I meant, do you, th- do you think the, the lower valuations in the UK compared to the US are enough to offset the fact that, you know, although you are paying more in the US, you're paying more in the US. Sorry, although you're getting these better companies in better conditions, you do have to pay up for it. Yeah, I, I don't think that matters. Um, I'll tell you for why. Essentially, there's there's a couple, there's a handful of companies in my portfolio that I think, you know, over the next 10 years will do extremely well. Uh, and we could talk about one, which is which is Axon Enterprise, um, that I've been talking about for a long time, at least on my Patreon blog and, and, and here, there and everywhere, really. You know, this is a company that is essentially going to transform an entire sector and you know has the power to and i think i've i've witnessed in my industry where a software product comes along and completely transforms everything um and that that product i'm going to talk about is viva systems um you might have heard of it it's a saas software solution for the pharmaceutical industry they essentially cover you know document management crm solutions you know across the whole board from not only the commercial side of the business but regulatory side of the business too and essentially when you have a highly regulated industry or something that is a very complex industry that hasn't been digitized when someone comes along that's well resourced and has the vision to go and digitize that industry you know they can do amazing things which is where you've seen the growth of viva i think axon as a company is going to do that in law enforcement and you know we know how complex especially us law enforcement is in terms of the judicial system you know on the street law enforcement you know imagine imagine where you have a system that is so still you know stuck in the past in terms of most of the things that happen get written on paper you know nothing has changed in the legal system really for hundreds of years people are still you know the process is still the same and now you've got this company axon who started with this taser business they they own the patent behind the taser gun and then they moved into body cameras and now they're moving into you know a SaaS workflow to manage the whole process. So storing the evidence, they're going to help you file a police report and then that report gets saved in the cloud and can be used by lawyers and other evidence sources can be used. Identification systems, so a police officer can you know look at an ID card with a Axon body cam and it can give all the data in real time you know, this company is going to completely transform a whole industry. And I don't think you've got anything like that in the UK because I don't think the capital, you know, the the resource pool to go and do something like that is just not there. You know, try list that on the London stock market, see what happens, you know, probably won't do too well. So when you're looking at your portfolio and thinking, okay, what names do I have in there? you know, what, what's really going to be able to take me from, you know, okay, my life's comfortable, but, you know, actually adding some serious value to your portfolio, those sorts of companies, I just can't find any in the UK, really. So why do you have the 40% UK at all or 30%? Why not just sell it and just 
or, or is that something that you think you probably will do over the next few years? And it, why hold any UK companies if all the best companies are in the US? Yeah, that's a that's a really, really good question. I think there's a diversification piece there for me. So there's that. There's also the currency piece, which we've talked about that, you know, throughout periods of time, you're going to be a little bit upside on the currency. So I think there's that. There's also a process of, you know, some of the, some of the companies that I've got, I think are probably either up there or, you know, good enough. So, you know, I think Games Workshop's probably 10% of my portfolio. So when I say the 40%, you know, I think Games Workshop's probably up there in the best of the companies that you can find. So I, I agree with that questioning. I think it's just you got to be super selective you know, if you are in the UK and also just consider what you're missing out by choosing to just completely ignore a market like the US. That's more of the message. So I've got it on my list to discuss anyway. Seeing as you've brought it up, why do you like Games Workshop so much? I should disclose, and this is going to be the case for a number of the companies we're going to talk about. <laughs> I, I am biased, so I think Games Workshop is my third largest position. So I do like it a lot. But why do you think it, it is that good that you would hold it instead of another US company? <laughs> great, great question. I think we went through a bit of this on the last podcast. And I think, you know, there are probably quite a few Games Workshop fans listening to your podcast. So I'm not going to go into too many of the details as to the basics of the business but essentially you've got a business focused on one thing right which is producing these miniature figures that people love so much then you've got this kind of side business in the kind of content and ip that it's leveraging so that's the kind of you've got this machine or engine chugging out returns which is your you know your miniatures business which is super high margin, you know, you're looking at, uh, it's like an Ikea model, right? It's like, you know, sell someone a, a table and get them to fit it at home. So, you know, you're selling someone a plastic, plastic, a piece of plastic essentially, and you're getting them to finish it, paint it, you know, take photos of it, put it on Instagram and market it. You know, you're getting the whole package done for you, but that's the art of the, the you know, miniatures business. So, You've got this incredible miniatures business, which does really good, you know, return on capital. It's a loan. It's worth investing in. Uh, but then this, this IP on the side where you've got years and years and years of a company that has done books and, you know, even into TV shows, it's got its own Warhammer plus, you know, content that it's churning out. So you've got a rich set of IP that it's kind of over the last three or four years really started to leverage one of my friends actually that um we we speak a lot about investing he actually plays the total war warhammer franchise games uh which are actually a smash hit so you can look on steam um and the rankings you know that's usually when it comes out it stays as number one for a long time so you know they've got some really good games and you know they're they're not afraid to kind of protect their ip and so much that actually i've read a story that when um activision blizzard the the company blizzard behind the um game 
you're going to have to help yourself. I think it's World of Witchcraft, something like that. I think that they actually went to Games Workshop to try and leverage their IP, but Games Workshop were worried that it would tarnish the IP in the first place. So, you know, World of Warcraft, would it be? World of Warcraft, World of Warcraft. Yeah, that's the one. So that was a smash hit, and arguably they made the wrong decision there. But you know, they are very protective of what they do uh, and want to kind of retain the value. As an offshoot, because it sort of links to this, what do you think of them restricting the ability of, like, say, the superfans to post content on YouTube? I, I think that's noise. I think it's a side side show. I think, you know, around the time they did that, so much was posted about how, you know, how it's a terrible thing and how there's boycotts and things like that. And, you know, the numbers didn't change. You know, they did absolutely fine. I can't imagine that having a massive impact on the on the end business so um but you know actually back to the business itself if you read a annual report from games workshop it reads like a Berkshire Hathaway you know report they are incredibly into you know managing the business as a steward and really not caring too much about what investors think and just focusing on the business and that shows then in their numbers, you know, they're paying quite a decent dividend now. Lots of special ones come through. They've got a return on capital employed that's frequently above 60% and operating margins that are above 20% too. So it's, you know, this is a business that has carried on performing throughout COVID. It's held on to its revenue, which is good to see. But, we, you know, there was criticism to say that this is going to just be a bump, you know, a bump mm. of year and then you know people would go outdoors but you know geeks don't go outdoors no like, you, like you made the, the joke rooms. before i could there <laughs> yeah yeah so so there's there's that kind of perception i guess but all in all good company so seeing as we've sort of hinted it a bit in that well you talked about games workshop being the stewards of the business what do you think about capital allocation in the covid era and the lessons we can take from it so for example one and a, one thing i i'd, I'd use an example is we've seen a lot of u.s buybacks that in hindsight were at very very high prices which i don't think is necessarily it's easy to say in hindsight but some of the capital allocation we've seen i don't think has been fantastic yeah uh, i i agree with you i think my my thoughts on capital allocation, I was just thinking about capital allocations. We were talking about Games Workshop there. Um, and the the beauty as to what they've done, which is essentially throughout COVID, nothing. They've they've focused on the business. And I think I I agree with you on the buybacks, but my main focus for capital allocation over the period and, and the lessons from it has been acquisitions or where they've spent on the business, you know, doing, doing the wrong things. And there's a, you know, there's a few ex- examples from that, but I think the the kind of the premise of this point is really interesting because for many years we've lived as investors through periods of time that are relatively stable and companies doing sensible things. And then this kind of whipsaw action of COVID and all of the stimulus and the low rates and, you know, the phenomenons like the game stops and you know different businesses and industries going parabolic because demand was there you've had some real strange 
uh, undulations in demand for different goods and services. So you've just had this incredible period of change, you know, condensed into such a short space of time that's now almost like a great bank of information for you to look back on and go, okay, how did my company allocate capital during this period? Um, and your point's very valid around buybacks, right? Where where companies have been buying back stock at you know incredibly high rates, but actually, when you look at the businesses and, and where they've been allocating capital in you know day to day operations, I think that's a really easy way to then kind of take a look at your business from there. So I've got a few in mind that you know one I talked about earlier, which was GB Group. You know, this is a company that is a capital allocator in terms of M&A. It's done M&A for years. But, you know, during this kind of COVID period, it goes and does a the largest M&A, you know, transaction of its entire lifetime at something like $900 million, buying a company which has got inflated revenues because Acuant does all of the cryptocurrency you know, transaction which was booming in in that period. So, you've got a company that was just way too quick to pull the trigger on something and, and get a deal done. You know, on the, on the operational side, I found a really interesting story around Zillow, which is the U.S. equivalent to Rightmove. And so, this is a company that's in the sweet spot during COVID. You know, it's got everything going for it. Everyone's on Zillow trying to buy a new house and and you know, move up the ladder and spending more time on the platform as they did with Rightmove. So what did Rightmove do during the 2020 kind of period? They did nothing. They actually went out and reduced their uh, fees to real estate agents in the UK, uh, gave them a three-month sort of period of, doing, you know, not charging any fees, and then slowly kind of gave that back, but they focused on the business. Zillow, on the other hand, the US company, started doing a whole new business unit called home flipping where they started buying houses in the US to list them on their platform to sell so going from you know classified ads portal to real estate flipper investor or something and it completely crashed the business so you know that's another one you got things like meta doing the metaverse you know one down here recently um 888 choosing to buy William Hill, uh, the European or UK operations. And uh, there was just some news out today that it's secured debt to do that transaction at an 11% interest rate. You know, how on earth they're going to make that deal work is beyond me and, and the people that I talk to on that. So you, maybe they're banking got... on 20% inflation. <laughs> Exactly. So you're thinking, you know, who's running these companies doing these sorts of deals? And more importantly, what you should be looking for is what consultancy is telling them, you know, that these deals are going to work out. But, you know, importantly, this is a period that you can look back on, you know, your portfolio companies and, and try and understand why they've done what they've done. And, and hopefully you haven't encountered too many of these capital allocation situations. But that's a few few kind of lessons that I've got there. I think mine have all been quite well behaved. Yeah. The only one that, that would get across for that would probably be Etsy. Um, yeah. So Etsy went out and bought, probably at the height of the pandemic, it bought LO7 and then it 
bought, which is like Deep the Brazilian Pop? Etsy, and it bought Depop as well. Um, yeah. Now, Depop, I, I, I love both the acquisitions. I think they make a lot of sense. I think they're great add-ons. I'd actually looked at whether or not Depop was listed previously, um, so I was very pleased when Etsy bought it because it's a business mm-hmm. I wanted to get my hands on anyway. But in hindsight, they did overpay. Um, and I think they've since written that down on the balance sheet as well. The only thing I'd say in their favour is I think they bought it with stock and his own stock was overpriced <laughs> at the time. So it, it's not ideal, but it does soften the blow a bit. But then both of those, they were small acquisitions and they were add-ons. Um, so neither of them were deal breakers. So they weren't fantastic. In, in, I think they were good acquisitions. The problem is they overpaid. Yeah. Um, I, I think at least they were in the same line of business. Yeah. That Etsy is in, right? And and there's a lot to be said for that. You know, when you've got, you know, Bayer, a pharmaceutical company buying Monsanto, which is a seeds business, you know, you, you I don't know how companies do this continuously, but it just brings disaster like uh, Avon Rubber buying a, a ballistics protection business that, goes on to fail all the tests and blow up the stock it's just that you don't know where they find them or how they get these ideas but you know you've got to stay in your same vertical in m a and if you're seeing a company doing something completely different it just doesn't make any sense mm. um, i think one actually one that's on the opposite side that i think is quite a good example of what, what i'd consider but it's it's it's, that, it's, it's quite a good one because it's incredibly poor capital allocation but for both businesses um so you know Halion, um yes yeah. yeah, so that when that was G, part of GSK, when Unilever came in and offered fifty billion for it, I think at the time the Unilever management was getting a lot of flack for not doing a good job, quite rightly. I think to me it just seems like they panicked and just thought well, we've got to go out and do something to appease shareholders. They offered massively more than what this business was worth. I think it's got some decent brands, but I I don't think the brands are as good as Unilever's. I think if it had the acquisition had gone through, I think the brand quality would have been dilutive, mm. albeit not by very much. And they offered fifty billion for this business, and for some reason, Glaxo rejected it. And then they just spun it off, and they they got half the amount for it. Um, I don't know who was actually making the worst decision there: <laughs> Unilever for trying or Glaxo for declining. But that's probably the worst one I've seen actually, because that's just a shambles on both sides. It's, it's awful. But the only thing that I can think of was. Uh, actually, when they spun off Halion, they added ten billion to its balance sheet in debt, which is what you've got to look out for in spin-off sometimes. That the ho- you know, the the parent company leverages that thing up and then spins it off. And so I'm I'm not sure what the total you know enterprise value that they kind of got away with. Maybe the market cap was half, but they might have kind of had the last laugh there with a bit of debt on top. But even if you had ten billion on, they're still fifteen billion short. Yeah, probably not the the offer from Unilever. No. Anyway, so speaking of debt, interest rates have moved, or actually started moving upwards since our last conversation. How has that affected you and your portfolio, if at all? Uh, Yeah. So essentially, you know, interest rates have a two-way kind of two-pronged effect on a portfolio you know in terms of you've got the immediate effect on pricing where you have you know a discounted rate to future earnings due to inflation and the impact of interest rates you've then got you know that's going to get baked into to the financials and then you know share prices will come down as a as a kind of a forecast of that 
that's the kind of short term headwind or, or impact as you you'd imagine. But then the actual business impact, I think, is a far more interesting thing to focus on because interest rates moving actually change how business is done and how a business will perform over a period of time. And I think that's the most interesting part for the portfolio because essentially if you're investing in businesses that require capital, you know, they're heavily capital intensive and they're not profitable, they're not, you know, cash flow positive, you know, that's the business that's going to suffer. So if you are invested in companies like I am, thankfully, that actually have what you would call incumbent businesses, you know, well-established businesses that arguably over the last four or five years have been experiencing competitive erosion due to these companies that come into the market for a myriad of reasons, but low rates have been able to fund, you know, their growth. You know, how many companies over the last five years have you seen that just, you know, have a negative net income but can get funded year after year? Let's say like an Uber or something like that or you know, I was going to say top, Uber. <laughs> yeah, Uber's the one off the top of your head. Delivery jump, jumps to mind yeah. for me as well. I think in, in, in the UK, probably the finance sector is a good one to look at. So like if you're Lloyds Bank, you know, you've been, you're like a bucket with holes getting drilled into it, you know, in, in terms of Monzo, Revolut, Starling, you know, all these digital banks that don't make any money and probably won't make any money for a long time that come along and erode your market share and you can't do anything about it because rates are at zero or 1%. They can attract capital so easily, focus on the growth, you know, which is a great thing for consumers, et cetera. But when this environment switches, you then end up with these decisions where these companies have to turn around and say, look, we're going to have to focus on cash flow and profitability now because we can't get debt at 1%, you know, they might have to go out to the bond market and do what Triple Eight did and get an eleven percent, you know, bond, which is impossible to then make work for your company. So cost of capital matters in terms of a company being able to go out and compete against you, you know, a loss making company. And one portfolio company I have here that, you know, I've seen the tangible impact and we can kind of go on to talk about other things about it, but the impact for interest rates is really clear is PayPal. So if you're to look at the transcripts from the earnings call for PayPal, you'll hear time after time, what they're experiencing now is competitors are actually backing out against them where they would have tendered offers previously. So in, in payments, it's still a business that you have to agree, say with a merchant, you know, a rate that you're going to give. So if you're, let's say you've got a Shopify store or you've got an online store off of Wix or something like that, and you want a payment button to sell your hats and scarves, right? You could get an offer from three or four different payment providers. In the past, when interest rates were at rock bottom, you might have offers from the new upstart payment companies that are you know, operating for free money, basically. They might offer you you know, 0.2% on a transaction, whereas PayPal will come in at much higher rate because it needs the cash flow. Now, 
you know, these companies that are operating at way thin margins are backing out. And so it makes, you know, those transactions and competing against them a lot easier if you already have that kind of wheels turning where you've already got a well-capitalized business. So I think that's, you know, an important part. I'm into the one story that I'm interested in following up on with that is uh, actually Tesla, because I think that's a company that has pretty much benefited the most from zero interest rates over the last decade. You know, you've got a highly capital intensive business of building these gigafactories and, you know, just the amount of capital that's required. And Elon did it all at pretty much you know, the zero interest rate period, right? Or, you know, between zero and three. So he sucked all this capital up to build this and, you know, become the incumbent electric vehicle provider. And then you've got, you know, the small upstarts like Rivian, Fisker, there's a Volvo one that's just listed. So you've got these ones that aren't profitable yet. And, you know, if you look at their stocks, for instance, for Rivian's just, you know, crashed 80%. So you've got businesses that are really shaky and don't know whether they're going to make it in terms of being able to attract that capital. So you're going to have a probably a better competitive environment there. So that's just sort of the things that I'm thinking about when I'm looking at a portfolio as to how rates are going to really impact the business um, rather than the stock price over the short term. So going back to PayPal, which is your biggest holding, if the current environment is actually more beneficial to PayPal, why has the stock performed so poorly? So this is one where we actually looked at it a few weeks ago on the show, and we couldn't believe how cheap it was for the quality of that business. And why? what do you think the valuation and quality is compared to Visa and MasterCard, who are probably the two closest competitors? Yeah, so... um... Uh, essentially i believe paypal succumbed to what's called the price drive narrative right so this was the best company in the world when it traded at 400 dollars a share you know and it's doing five percent every day and you're just seeing you know everyone loving the company uh and then a couple of things go wrong and you know the shares are on on you know the decline and you know the narrative changes and i think the, the the stock overshot massively, but I think it's done the same, you know, on the on the kind of on the decline. I think as a business, you know, there are a few things that have happened in the recent times that just goes to show how much people almost detest the company because of the narrative, right? And the biggest one that I've seen no coverage on is the situation with Apple. So I think, a, a, you know, a major factor for me in adoption of PayPal's kind of services is whether or not they're on Apple Pay. Um, you know, it stopped me from using PayPal more than I would like to. And it probably stopped a lot of other people that essentially you get to a till in the UK or the US and you can't pay with your Apple Pay wallet. And that's because obviously Apple holds the keys to that wallet and for for competitive reasons, doesn't want PayPal on there. Now, there's been a lawsuit in the US uh, and some sort of antitrust lawsuit going on. And actually, Apple have now turned around before that lawsuit is concluded 
and decided to work with PayPal on introducing their services into Apple Pay. And so if you look at their latest um, quarter, I think Q3, they've actually put that in their investor presentation. You know, on one of the key slides up front, they put straight away, you know, uh, PayPal goes into Apple Pay. So that will be working in America. And I think that's going to do a lot of transformative things for the business. But then behind that, you've also got some other things going on, which is, you know, as you probably know, the company's changed strategy. So it's not focusing on at any cost growth in PayPal members. It's just focusing on actually monetizing the existing 400 million plus people that's that's already there. But actually, as you look at that uh, number, it's still rising year on year. It's got a business ex eBay, which is growing very well. And then the the two other businesses within PayPal, I actually really like. So you've got Venmo, which is a peer-to-peer payments company in the US, which has got something like 80 million users and is you know, pretty much outstripping a lot of the competition. But even in the UK, there's a company that they've got called Zettel, which if you go to many either market stalls or even, you know, shops throughout the high street, you'll see that they'll use a Zettel terminal and the Zettel, you know, pay pad. So I think they're quite nicely spread across the payments ecosystem and the margins speak for themselves. You know, you, you've got a business doing 20, 20 to 25% operating margins and can quite quite comfortably grow top line at double digits, you know, free cash flow of something like five billion a year. So it's in the right spot to do some good buybacks with the the price very low. So I don't think this is a business that's going away. I think this is a business that's getting better. And you know, you don't sell businesses that are getting better despite the shares, you know, not being where you want them to be. Um on your question of comparing it to Visa and MasterCard, so I, I actually own MasterCard, um, not not as high a position, and I think you know MasterCard and Visa are undoubtedly better businesses, but have come with a higher valuation than PayPal. So, if you were to ask two years ago, I think PayPal was tra- trading at about fifty or forty-five to fifty times earnings where MasterCard and Visa are about 30. But now I think PayPal's probably sub-20 times earnings, and you've got MasterCard and Visa, which have stayed at around 30. So, you know, that's why it's become a bigger percentage of my portfolio because of that, you know, dip in valuation. Um, but I certainly like the the former, former two that you've mentioned there as well. So have you added to PayPal at all since it's dropped? Yes, yeah, I've probably doubled the the size of the position. What do you think of JD Sports? Because that's another one in your portfolio. I, th- I think it was there last time as well. Um, yeah. My issue, we've only covered this a couple of times on the show. The issue I have with JD Sports, I just think the, the JD brand here, it's it's a very powerful brand. It, like I like I remember for me the classic examples. I remember in like you know year eight, year nine. If you went to school with a JD Sports bag, the, the yellow <laughs> bag, it's it's a cool bag. Like it was cool, mm. you know. Whereas compare that to going in with a Sports Direct bag, you just wouldn't dream of it. But in America, these businesses they're buying, so like Shoe Palace and whatever, are these businesses as good, 
or are they diluting the quality of that brand? And that, that's the, that's my biggest concern with JD. That I don't, although I know JD and I like JD, I don't know the businesses they're buying. So, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, I, I I think that's that's a good question. I th- I think in the industry that they're in, you have to have this like heightened understanding of the customer. Um, Otherwise, you quickly just you quickly lose share to whoever's the cool kid on the block, right? And you can tell that if if you go traveling throughout Europe, you'll see the stores that JD owns and the ones that they don't own, and you can almost see you know you go in somewhere, you can see what's a good store and, and what's a store that's not you know appealing to that customer subset. And nine times out of ten, JD get it pretty well on you know there's a there's a formula for for doing this that you know they've obviously done in the uk but this is a company that's you know had a lot of success outside the uk in in europe with their various brands so in europe they own uh intersport uh and a, and a bunch of other they own 40 shops under the cosmos brand in greece and others so i've i've actually traveled around and, and gone into some of these stores and what they'll often do is if they're in a market where there's a store that has this connection with consumers because it's built up a cool brand or whatever, they will leave it, you know, as it is. And I think they've done that in the US with DTLR and Shoe Palace, at least, because they're two franchises that are on the East and West Coast. So, you know, they've identified that if you actually read into the acquisitions, each store has a different subset of customers. So I think one of them on the west coast appeals to the latin american customer base which is you know you've got a lot of latin americans in in those kind of cities like la um and then the one on the east coast is a different consumer you know completely but they've they've done an acquisition called finish line which was their first entry into the us and they've actually set about changing a lot of those stores to the jd brand where they feel it's necessary. So I think if if you actually look at the company and what they've done over the years and everything that they do, they are experts in creating this sense of a place to be and you know really knowing their customer and understanding who they are, why they're buying what they're buying, you know and and everything around it. If you actually look on the shop the stores online for the companies that they've acquired, they've got completely different stock lines. So what's available in Shoe Palace and what's available in the DTLR store is completely different and often unique to that sort of specific site or area. So I think they'll probably hold on to those you know, individual brands and not merge them to the, to the JD brand. But I think they're under control. I think, the only thing that the only thing that has changed with JD since we last spoke about it is the fact that their CEO and chairman, a guy called Peter Calgill, uh, has resigned. Essentially, he was dealing with a lot of pressure from the CMA in the UK, where, I mean, for rightly or wrongly, they tried to acquire Foot Asylum, which is a it was around a hundred million pounds compared to their market cap of about six billion and you know you only have to take one look at foot asylum 
on the high street to know that they're going to go bust in a few years. You know, they've got no customer proposition. It's you know, watery thin. And they've obviously, JD, have just thought of it a way as to kind of buy some more real estate and slap the JD name on it, I guess. But the competition's authority blocked the deal. Uh, and then Peter Cowgill was since seen in a car park in his car next to, I think, the the then CEO of Foot Asylum, you know, in another car, and it all looked very dodgy. Uh, and so he hit the papers for that. And uh, I think, a, you know, you're not supposed to technically be the chairman and CEO in the UK under various rules, um, which you probably know more than me about. But all of that pressure mounted on him meant that he exited the business. So he was the kind of main driving force of that company for probably 20 years and built it into, you know, one of the most successful companies on, on the London stock market over that time under his strategy. So I'm hoping that that carries through, but that's probably the main one that I'm monitoring. What you do have with JD is it's predominantly owned by one shareholder called the Pentland Group, and they own other various other companies, but their main investment has been JD, and they've just grown, you know, as a as a investment vehicle behind that. I think they're private equity, and they own about fifty percent of JD. So you'd like to think that they've kind of got a good play in 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 what goes on and and where the strategy of the group goes over time. Um, but yeah, that's probably my only concern. But I think in general, it's probably a, a good enough company to carry on, carry on holding. Moves on quite nicely then to a business that I'm sure you probably have more than one or two concerns about, albeit <laughs> a very good business. Boohoo in the current yeah. issues. What do you think of Boohoo? And do you see those issues as temporary? Um, again, I'm biased. I own Boohoo. Uh, John also owns it. Whenever we go through <laughs> the reports and we look at the issues they're having, to, to us, they seem like temporary issues um, without leading the question too much. Temporary for the last three years. <laughs> That's temporary. Um, yeah, uh, I think Boohoo clearly do something amazing in their investor relations because they clearly make it a little bit difficult to understand, you know, really what's going on. And I think they, you know, I, I used to read, um, I used to have access and, and read some broker notes on them years and years and years ago when they were trading at a valuation of 60 times earnings. And this was the best business that you could buy in the UK at the time and all that sort of rubbish. So I think that, you know, they clearly are doing good things on on the investor relations side that I worry clouds the actual narrative as to what the company is doing. So there's that kind of, there's that background. I've kind of, yeah, I'd say I've lost a bit of faith with, with it as a company. I think one of the things that I used to think about a lot more than I do now is around ethics. And I think we had this conversation last time that, when you look at Boohoo, you know, once you see a pattern of ethical missteps, you can almost be pretty sure that that sort of stuff carries on happening. I think the last time we were talking about, you know, the the factory uh, concerns 
that actually, funnily enough, are still ongoing. But you know, the factory concerns, and then you know, the other one that I said to you is the the chairman Mamani. He he, you know, did a building wherever wherever he lives, and he just basically built a building without planning permission. <laughs> and so you're you're like you're building this picture of someone who clearly isn't playing by the rules and you wonder about the ethical governance in that company and and actually over time that played out with all of the things that then went to happen and you had a potential u.s lawsuit where they were looking at getting banned from the u.s so there are so many issues with it as a company which is essentially why you know the shares have been battered but you know rather than looking at what's happened you know what are you left with today you are left with, you know, a business that's got a very good business in the UK. You know, you you can look at the numbers; they're growing pretty well in the UK alone. But is hampered by a low, essentially a, a weak margin. You know, inflation, shipping costs. They've just basically expanded at the wrong time and hit a bit of a bit of a air pocket should we call it where you know they've chosen to set up all their us and overseas infrastructure at at the time where you've got coming out of covid i mean i read something about them flying planes you know we were talking about capital allocation earlier you're looking at a company that's flying planes of cargo planes of boohoo t-shirts you know that can't be very profitable so you know there are there are questions there but they've essentially run into a supply chain nightmare at the wrong time. And I think, you know, where you've got a company like Games Workshop that, you know, the margin on their plastic is 30%, 40%. They've got a lot more leverage than a T-shirt where the margin is 4%. So, you know, that was that's an immediate lesson. But, you know, sort of, scouring the wreckage do you have a a good enough company to hold on to probably would i be adding i'd have to see some kind of real business turnaround and a return to much better profitability before i started adding so that's my view but i'm happy to hear yours have you added to it since we last spoke no oh no so when we last spoke, we I didn't have it, and neither did John. It's only covering it on the show. Um, we 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 knew <laughs> we knew there were. You into it. <laughs> yeah, well, part, well, not just you, but covering it on the normal show a few times. Yeah. You know, for for us, the the numbers it was putting up were always very good, and we always used to, it was a bit like Fever Tree, um, where it was one of them companies we'd cover it and be like fantastic company, but it's just for us it was the valuation when it was at fifty times earnings. It just we we just couldn't justify that, and had it got to about I don't know like twenty. 15 times earnings and these are probably on reduced earnings as well and at that point we started thinking well actually um we do like the business we we i i don't want to speak for john but i i i think of the the problems are temporary it's like you know when they're talking in the reports about how like they just you know they can't even satisfy the demand they've got in america you know think about how they're, they're getting possibly to a saturation point in the uk but that american market is massive and i don't think it's really priced in because it's just so unbelievably cheap now. I know they have. I mean, John was. I was talking to John 
I think it was last night when we recorded it, it was off air, he was saying that there's been some kind of, I can't remember which paper, but someone's published some kind of sting on them again. And the latest <laughs> issue is that in the heat of the summer in one of the factories, it was just <laughs> insanely hot. And their solution was to put the Pakistani workers at one end where it was the hottest, and then the British workers were at the other oh, end. And the, the, with the, with the justification, and the, this is all alleged, by the way, but the <laughs> the justification being that they're more used to the heat, so they can they can de- deal with it. I won't go into the detail. But it gets it gets worse actually. Uh, but that's that's the latest thing. Fortunately, I think the shares have been battered so much; it's not going to make any difference. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, so so I got into it probably at about sixty p, and I thought, well, this is pretty cheap now <laughs> it got cut in half oh no it didn't. was it it might have been higher it might have been like a pound i'm not sure i think it might have been one like one pound one pound 20 when i first got in i was like well how much cheaper can it go i think it dropped about 60p and then i added again <laughs> i think i added again around 35 40p um and it's at the point it's not a huge position for me anyway especially given that the first investors down like 75 percent that's on a business that was already down 75 (laughs) percent but it's it's i'm quite happy i'm quite happy holding it i know i know it's very high risk but i I just think if they can if they can get back to the sort of levels they were at well they don't even have to get back to those levels i think they're so cheap now that if they just start doing okay i think it's underpriced and if they start to show some decent growth in america I, i think Maybe we'll not see four pounds a share again anytime soon or three pounds or whatever it was. But I don't see why if they can't start showing some American growth and, and they're back to profitability in the UK. I don't see why it couldn't be a lot higher than it is. Um, cause it, I view it as I, 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 I almost think it's priced as if it's going to go bust. And when I look at it and compare it to say, for example, Tem, Ted Baker, which we have looked at a few times on the show, you know, we've looked at Ted Baker and we've thought, well, you know, it's priced as if it's going bust because it probably is. I just don't get that with Boohoo. Yeah. No, but I, I get you. I, I think I suffer from, you know, on this one, I was talking about price drive narrative earlier. I, I think I suffer from just being so underwater with that position and just, you know, you kind of go in that write-off mode where you don't want to hear any more about it. So, you know, I'm not as up-to-date on the American story as I'd like to be. So I'll I'll recap on that. But um, it's it's definitely an interesting story. Well, in, in fairness um, with the American story, there's not been much there because of COVID. I mean, the, the revenue compared to Europe, I think it's about a third of the size or something. It might be even smaller. But it's just with that market being so big. But obviously over the pandemic, they've just not been able to get the stuff there. So you've not mm. seen that growth. And what I'm hoping is in the next, you know, two, three years now that we're coming out of the pandemic and I, th- I think, you know, the supply chain issues are being solved. I'm hoping to see, you know, the the same sort of growth numbers we were used to as 20, 25% plus a year, but it's going to be America driving it rather than Europe. That's what I'm hoping to see from it. I could be wrong, but <laughs> we'll see. So seeing as I, I did sort of mention it as a comparator, and I think it is... It, it was only in terms of how it's, you know, it's, it was one of the aim darlings and it's had this big drop. I don't think it's fair to compare the current state of the business to Boohoo. But what do you think of Fevertree's recent performance and the results? And last time you were on, you did talk about, you know, they're not really being a premium market in the US. And if, if they could create that, they could do very, very well. Do, do you feel like they're much closer to that? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting in your, uh, comparison to boo because the story isn't that far away in so much as the fact they're doing the u.s expansion at exactly the same time so they've run into a lot of similar problems that boo have you know fever tree 
have a distribution partner out in the US called Southern Glazers, I think, something like that. They're, they're the biggest US you know, spirits and drinks distributor, and they've got a bottling plant out there. But essentially during COVID, they couldn't bottle enough of the stuff. You know, we got workers going off sick and, um, you know, people just deciding not that they, they didn't want to do that anymore. So you, you, you've literally got, you know, to pardon the pun, a supply chain bottleneck, you know, on that, on that bottling line. And, um, you've got, you know, a, a shortage of glass. You've got things like that, that again, these are seriously short term things. So what they ended up doing was piling a load of, fever tree soda onto cargo ships and, and shipping it over to the US, which completely destroyed the margin. So that is similar to to what Boohoo's doing with flying the stuff over. And, you know, I can see why they've done that. But with fever tree, if, there's an investor that I follow called Nick Train from Linzel Train. You've probably heard of him, but he's grown his position in fever tree to be the number one shareholder over the last a uh, year or so as, as the shares have declined. So you've got Nick Train from Linzel Train and then you've got Fundsmith in the top 10 as well. So, you know, this is a business that you've got some really good investors starting to kind of take uh, a holding in. But what Nick Train was saying, and I agree with him, that when you are building a brand like Fever Tree, I think Boohoo's a little bit different um, because it's less brand recognition than fever tree is you know you're building you want to build you know the next coca-cola essentially or like a niche version so you're building this fever tree brand as they have done in the uk it does not make sense to be spending on marketing and trying to grow the foundation in the us and then have the shelves empty it doesn't make sense so you should literally destroy your margin get that soda on the shelf you know hit the the Americans with the marketing on all the channels you can. And then they go down to Target, they go down to Walmart or Costco and pick up as much of that stuff as possible and start drinking it at home. And then they can taste the difference between that and the sugary Schweppes that they're used to drinking. And, you know, you start to change the consumer mindset and, and you know, do what we've done in the UK. Whereas I, I, I don't know whether I, I said this on the last time, but, where where I bought Fever Tree was I was out with some friends and they said, you know, as they'd go to a bar, do you have Fever Tree? I'll have a gin and tonic. You know, if the bar wasn't stocking the Fever Tree, they weren't going to have a gin and tonic, which essentially, you know, is a signal to one, the quality of the drink, but, you know, the branding and the marketing that's gone in there that, you know, that is going to make their decision for them. So if we can get there with the brand in the US, which... There are some signs that it's starting to, you know, make some traction. You know, Fever Tree's got a massive runway. Um, and I think that story hasn't really changed at all. All you've had is the impacts of the supply chain situation. And you're seeing shipping rates come down. You're seeing, you know, workers return. You're seeing less, you know, logistics problems. So, you know, I think Fever Tree's going to improve. And I think you're you're looking at a company that, has been battered and can easily swing, you know, back up because at the end of the day, its margins are, are pretty decent. You know, if it can just bottle enough of it in the US and, and wherever it needs to, 
I think that'll that'll turn around. What's the valuation like at the minute? And have you added to this one as it's come down? Yeah, I, I added to it a couple of months ago. Actually, um, it's it's I. Do you know what? I, I haven't checked, but I would assume it's something like around the twenty times earnings. Oh, I was hoping um, you'd give a lot. I think we covered it about three months ago, um, and it come down site. It was low twenties, maybe about twenty. Yeah, and we were both at the point where we've we've covered it a few times, and really, as we've gotten to understand the business, we have grown to really like it. Um, and it's a business that certainly I would like to own at a price, but I just I don't know at twenty times earnings. I don't know if it's quite there. I appreciate there might be reduced earnings as well, but it's it's kind of I think. I think I think my mentality when we last looked at it like three months ago is well hopefully next time we cover it it's been cut in half again and then I'd have a serious look so that's where I am with it I think at a price so, I would like to own it. So if you look at the the chart uh, and I'm on market screen here uh, I, and I don't get paid for <laughs> for uh, recommending them but I, I sincerely would say go go and use it but essentially in 2017 their operating margin was 27. 27- Point seven percent in their latest, you know, results. The forecast for twenty twenty two is going to be eight point seven percent. So you've had an extreme hit to the margins, mm. and then that's obviously going to flow to net income and, and earnings, right? So their their revenue has gone from in that same period twenty nineteen is two hundred sixty one million to in twenty twenty two it'll be around three hundred fifty eight million. So forecast of 400 million of uh, revenue in 2023 so if you apply the same net margin to 2023 which is around 20 percent you know you're looking at 80 million of net income versus 25 of net income which is forecast for 2022 so you know that that pe of 25 could really you know significantly swing the other way if they get a return to profitability so i think it's probably cheaper than it it seems yeah i think when it's a reduced earnings as well you have to take that into consideration um we've got safe store as a new investment how long have you had this and what what led to you you getting it and what did you think of it did you look at any of the competitors because i think we've covered safe start and big yellow on the show um so yeah so what what led to you deciding to pull the trigger on this one yeah so um safe store was really came about as 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 you know i i've changed jobs recently so you know in terms of personal income has improved and and cash flows improved so on, on a personal level I'm then able to kind of invest a lot more, you know, over time than I was. So I think my focus has changed a tiny bit from, you know, needing to ensure that my portfolio has almost like these kind of platforms or pillars for growth, because we all know that there's some companies in our portfolio that we look at and we think, okay, I'm only going to add a certain amount to that. You know, if your, if your salary went, 5x you know what what are you going to carry on you know adding in value 
if if that makes sense you know because there's some things that you you look at and you're like okay I, i'm only comfortable with a certain nominal value being attached to that name in your portfolio maybe i'm you know not speaking investment sense here but you know for me there's a certain risk you know quoting with certain holdings so safe store was added as something that you know i wanted to beef up that ability to look at the portfolios okay right as i'm adding more to it what are some of the names in there that i could look at and go okay i'm just going to continually add to these names because i feel the risk reward is good enough um and so safe stores a business that owns property in both london and paris mainly so you're looking at prime sort of real estate that it then you know lets out to people who need temporary um you know storage facilities so actually when you look at the investor presentation you've still got people from 2010 you know and beyond that that are still you know paid members of a site and there was there's a, a really interesting piece on uh, Costco and you can find it on the Investors Chronicle but Phil Oakley used to talk about Costco a lot on the Investors Chronicle and I think that they've got they'll have a slide in the Costco investor presentation that really looks at once you've built a Costco warehouse how that warehouse performs year after year and what they've noticed that pretty much you build a Costco warehouse and its financial performance gets better and better and better every year in perpetuity it attracts more customers its net margin you know improves so you end up with this cycle of you build something and it you know continuously improves actually when you look at safe store it does a lot of the same thing so it will build a unit that starts out not very profitable but over time that unit quickly kind of gathers pace attracts more customers maybe half of it will attract customers that stay there for a long period of time. So the occupancy rate improves. And so you've got this snowball effect of each unit becoming, you know, a stronger contributor to, to, to net profit and cash flow over time. So it's an incredibly powerful model. Um, you've got things like divorce, you know, breakups, deaths in family, like th- these things happen all the time and create the situation where you might need storage you know, in somewhere like London where there's no storage available. So, you know, it's quite recession resistant, you would say. You've got the net asset value that will increase with time. So it's not only, you know, an, a business, but it's also an asset play. So there's a, a lot of features, but all in all, it's 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 kind of a, a good growth, but, you know, a responsible level of risk. So it's something in the portfolio that you can just add to, uh it's a sleep at nighter so your long divorce <laughs> exactly <laughs> right so another one we talked about last time was dark trace this, this is a business i've not really followed at all um so i don't i still know very little about it apart from what you said on our interview um, and then also what luke Hallard said um when i covered it i might have mentioned it with him at the very least so yeah how's how's that been doing uh, short answer volatile <laughs> is the only thing you can ascribe to it. Uh, you know, it, it's a company that shot up, I think, 200% after its IPO and then down 60%. And then it's recently had a bid from uh, Tom Bravo, which is a US private equity company in the space. And that deal went through. So that whipsawed, you know, from 
are probably up 50% and down the same amount. So, you know, it's been a wild ride, but um, as, as a company, it's it's still doing pretty well. I think it's growing at like 40%. Uh, and then it's it's got two kind of main things that you need to look out for, which is the net retention rate and the gross churn rate or the net churn rate, sorry. So the net retention rate is, okay, how much as an average set of customers will you spend next year on dark traces services so in dollar terms and that's you know about 106 percent. so although some customers drop off the average is you know the the net retention of customers is 106 percent in dollar terms so that's pretty good you know the the best cybersecurity companies out there are crowdstrike in the us and zscaler um, and this again goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the US and the transformative companies they have. If you look at Zscaler's net retention rate, you know, in dollar terms, it's about 127%. You know, so each customer is spending that same dollar and another 27 cents again on the next year. And it's kept that up for a long time. So you could see what a company can go on to do. So Darktrace isn't quite there yet, but it's it's improved that retention rate over time. Then gross net churn rate is the amount of customers that drop off which for dark trace is around six percent of customers so i've got some friends that work in the cybersecurity space and you know one of one of the people that i talk to regularly their company is around 25 percent of customers are churning which is very high and they're quite you know there's still quite a good cybersecurity firm so I i think there's some good numbers in there that seem to be improving every time I'm reading reports or at least kind of leveling off, you know, from as much research as that I can do, I think um, I'm quite happy with the business in terms of what it's achieving. It, it it just needs to separate itself over time from some of the problems that have uh, caused it trouble, such as uh, the kind of ex-founder, Mike Lynch, who's got a fraud case in the US for autonomy. And then, you know, some of the kind of worries around that. So, you know, the longer it can carry on performing and, and putting up some decent numbers, I think the more, you know, investors will be reassured and come back to the name, which is, you know, it's currently trading at such a wide discount to those kind of key players in the US. It's, it's probably, I'd say about 60% discounted on a, you know, enterprise value um, sort of ratio that, you know, between those companies that, you know, there's a wide margin there to go at. Final question. What is Samarkand um, and how did you find it? And what do you like about it? Because when you sent over the list, I'd, I'd literally never heard of this one. <laughs> you, you'll have never have heard of it because it's not actually listed on the London Stock Exchange uh, or or any big exchange. It's actually on the Aquis Exchange, uh, which used to be called something else. The name might come to me in a bit but essentially it's an alternative stock exchange in the uk that deals with a lot lower volume and a lot lower you know market cap sizes so you can list probably a lot cheaper and and sort of it's an alternative way to attract capital you can still trade these shares through hargreaves lansdowne but i think you have to call them 
um to to end up buying it so it's a little what bit happens when you want to sell i think you've got to call them again <laughs> and hope someone wants to buy them yeah exactly 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 so yeah this is a very risky area of the of the market that you know cannot be advised to people to to go and, and look at but this company itself you know looking through i was actually introduced to them from um PI World, which is a service, an investor service. Um, they do all sorts of interviews. They've, they've got a really good resources section on their website where they talk to fund managers in the UK uh, about what they're doing and their thoughts and stuff like that. So that's uh, really good. But anyway, introduced to them on that. I think they did their earnings release through through PI World. Essentially, what they do is they deal with e-commerce in China. So they are a portal for brands in the West to essentially frictionlessly list their wares on Chinese commerce sites such as Billy Billy, Taobao, uh, Tmall. You know, these are a lot of the Alibaba uh, websites and and a few of the new ones. Uh, Do Yin, which is TikTok for for China. So essentially, they've got expertise in e-commerce for, for china and they also they're, they're essentially like a mini uh thg in the, the sense that you can kind of deliver the product to them and they'll fulfill it you know and, and deal with the whole kind of life cycle so they've got quite a few brands that have decided to to kind of partner up with them and they've also got a checkout service called nomad checkout which is another part of their business, which we're hoping is going to turn into a sort of checkout payments, you know, facilitator. So they've got a few of the kind of businesses in, in that area. So I thought it was quite an interesting company. I think doing a bit of due diligence, I really like the company a bit more because um, if you actually go on Google Maps and look at where their head office is, they're based out of a industrial unit um somewhere in you know the outskirts of london and you know the guy behind it uh david i don't know his surname but the ceo you know, he's just a very humble guy and you can kind of as you look at the situation of where they are and what they're trying to do you kind of get a good impression as to you know, these are guys that aren't trying to waste money on a flashy office and you know have lots of expenses they're just really focusing on the business and you know, I think one day they'll probably build it to a certain scale and sell it to someone like THG who will look to, you know, expand their, their kind of fulfillment and, you know, services into into a market like China. So I think there's a lot of expertise there. It's it's just gonna take time to be to be tapped and leveraged. But you know, it's a company that's gonna be, you know, issuing capital and you know, probably not going to be a successful holding for quite a long time. So it's not something I'm kind of going to lose any sleep or, or hold my breath on. <laughs> so that's the end of the questions. Do you own Gamma? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know why I didn't put a question about that. It might have been because I didn't just want to use you to just get you to just uh, <laughs> talk about all the ones I own. It just It's just a bit of a lazy way of doing some research. Um, see, seeing as uh, I've brought it up anyway, though, um, what do you think of Gamma's performance in the last 18 months? 
in terms of the results, I mean, speaking as a shareholder myself, in terms of the results, I've been pretty happy with them. I've been happy with the acquisitions. I, I didn't feel like, you know, even at its heights, I didn't feel like the share price was that expensive. I still liked it, like, you know, 20, 25, 30 times earnings. But it's it's come down a lot. I think it's down about two thirds. So, you know, I like it more now and I have added to it since it dropped. But what are your thoughts on it? Um, so it's actually one that I probably, I haven't done too much research on since I last wrote on it, which, you know, that article will be on my website. Essentially, the last... The last results that it put out, I don't think the market liked that much, but it was still like a kind of a, this is the trusty, trusty old gamma. Like I read, um, they've, they've got a broker called um, Progressive Equity, which do research reports on them. So check those out as a bit of research. It's almost like a broker note for free. So Progressive Equity, do do some good ones. So yeah, the last the last results looked as kind of business as usual. I think growth was about like nine percent or something like that, and you know margins remain pretty solid, which is you know great to see. I think the thing that I'm looking out for is what they do with the cash. You know, over the last few years, I think they they've made you know an acquisition a year basically since probably 2017 and you know of the 30 40 million size and they've now got about 70 million of net cash and so i'm kind of you know every time they post an rns or something like that i'm i'm rubbing my hands to sort of see what they come out and do and it's been slightly yeah i don't want to say irritating but you know it's been tentative watching them not deploy that capital yet because that's that's what gets the snowball you know rolling and you know it's it's i view it as a as a serial acquirer you know something that grows through acquisitions and i'm happy with that you know because it's done them so well so you know we want that to continue but you know i'm hoping that their market is wide enough for them to do that but then back to our conversation earlier about capital allocation you know Maybe they're just taking their time to to do it right, which is you know, no no bad thing. Okay, so that's the that is the end of the questions now. Um, is there anything you'd like to add, or if not, where just one more time, where can people find you? Yeah, no, nothing nothing else to add really. Uh, if if you want to find me, if you've got any questions, you know, reach out to me. I'm, I'm on Twitter. Sam follows me, and he's he's tweeted about my account. Uh, this evening which is the 23rd of the 11th i'm under the quality compound if, if you can't find me i'm also i have a website uh an email that you can ping me through an email so james at the quality compound.com um so yeah feel feel free to ping me out a question i haven't updated the portfolios on the website for a while so that's on my to-do list so you can kind of check that out and see all the companies that we talked about uh over the last couple of hours so do do take a visit if, if you want um but yeah i think that's probably everything sam okay well thank you very much for coming back on open invitation if you want to come back for 18 months <laughs> again please do feel free um because I, I do enjoy chatting to you um so thank yeah uh, just thanks again <laughs> no, thank you right in that case uh thank you very much for listening and we will see you all next week thank you for listening to the investor way to get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. 
Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.